0: All right, welcome back to the Speech Path Podcast, and this is the podcast that talks about everything speech pathology, and I am Amy Conrad, and today we are going to talk to Dr. Ertmer. So, Dr. Ermer, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what you do here at Purdue?
1: Uh, hi, my name is Dave Ertmer. I'm a professor in speech language and hearing sciences. I teach classes uh, like an introduction to communication disorders and uh, oral rehabilitation across the lifespan. I'm a speech pathologist by training, uh, but my research is uh, related to how children who are deaf and hard of hearing acquire spoken language after they get a cochlear implant at a young age.
0: Okay, all right. So, can you tell us a little bit of why you first became a speech pathologist? you started your career.
1: Okay, Um, yeah. Well, when I was um, in high school, I was thinking about possible career paths, and I come from a family of educators. And I knew I didn't really want to be a classroom teacher, um, but I was interested in education. And um, at that time, I was uh, uh, taking music lessons, and I enjoyed the one-on-one with my uh, music teacher, And I thought, well, I like music, but I'm not sure I want to make a career out of it. And then I heard about um, speech pathology, and it seemed to make sense because it was sort of educational and working with children, and uh, yet it was more uh, small group and individual. And so that type of setting appealed to me.
0: Right. So how did you go about getting your education for this?
1: Well, I uh, went to Marquette University for my undergraduate And uh, back in those days, your undergraduate also included some clinical training. So we not only had uh, experiences as juniors and seniors in the clinic, uh, but we also had a school externship um, in our senior year. So for the semester, I was going to a a school and and working as a speech pathologist under the supervision of a practicing clinician. And then... um, At that point in time, um, the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association started to um, require a master's degree, and so um, I uh, was able to get a job with my bachelor's degree in Wisconsin, uh, but then I started my master's program uh, sort of as a part-time student in the evening, and finished that up, and then... um, worked in the public schools uh, in Milwaukee and then in Colorado uh, for about um, 17 years. And then I uh, was looking for something more and I came back to school and uh, followed up on my interest in uh, children with hearing impairment okay. and got my doctoral degree here at Purdue. All
0: right. Was there a certain point that you realized that you wanted to come back and get your doctorate? Yeah, That's there there was. Yeah, <laughs> I can
1: even remember exactly when it happened. I had uh, been been a speech pathologist in a school for the deaf and then um and then also in regular uh, elementary schools in Wisconsin and then Colorado. And I really enjoyed that work. Uh, I enjoyed um uh, just about everything about it, working with kids, uh coordinating with their teachers and um So I I really wasn't looking for anything else or a change, but then I read in uh, an ASHA magazine about a fellowship that was available um, for uh, leadership training in hearing impairment. And I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. So um, my wife and I um, decided we'd take a look at that and just take one step at a time and apply for that and then... Uh, we had four kids at the time, so we had to think about, well, you know, what's our income going to be like? And turns out the fellowship also um, covered tuition and, um, and gave you a stipend. Okay. And uh, we were able to kind of make things work with my school district, and uh, they gave me a three-year leave of absence and some pay for the first year, with the plan being to go back and work there. Uh, again, uh, later on it turned out that I wouldn't be able to finish in that amount of time, and so we had to make a settlement to repay them for some of that money. Um, but, um, that's kind of how we made it happen.
0: Okay. Alright, that's yeah. really cool. So, you talked a little bit about working in different schools and like a school for the deaf. Did you have, like, a preference of schools that you worked in? or did you like all the experiences the same?
1: No, they, they weren't. Um, I started out teaching in the inner city in, in Milwaukee. Okay. And um, so that was, that was a great experience, and I really enjoyed the teachers and the kids there. Um, but then I uh, transferred to a school for deaf children that used signed English, okay. and so that was a big challenge to pick up signing and to uh, pick up some... Knowledge about how to work on spoken language with kids who are deaf. Okay. And uh, so, um, again, I enjoyed working with the teachers in that school and learned a lot from them. And uh, that period was actually the, the clinical highlight of my career. I enjoyed working okay. with deaf children uh, so much.
0: Good.
1: And then uh, that was in Wisconsin, and we had our first son, and we decided we'd moved back to Colorado to be closer to the grandparents.
0: Okay.
1: And uh, so when we went back there, I didn't uh, find another job in a school for the deaf, and I returned to elementary schools and junior highs in in Colorado. Um, So, yeah, I think the highlight was definitely Mm -hmm. working in the school for the deaf.
0: Okay. So when you did work in the school for the deaf, you mentioned that you had to pick up sign while you were Mm -hmm. were learning. Was that a challenge at all, or did it come easily?
1: Well, you know, it... um, it was a challenge, and at first, I had a lot of sort of book learning and practicing to doing to do, but then um, when you do it every day, um, it just becomes ingrained yeah. and so you um, know talking with the kids, talking with other teachers, use speech and sign and and uh, so that immersion really was good for me as right. far as the signing skills sense. go
0: okay um, is there? a bad part about being a clinician at all? Or is there
1: all good parts? You know, there there really wasn't a bad part for me. Um, I enjoyed it all the way through my 17-year clinical career. It was just that at um, that point, I was ready for something new. Okay. So that's why we uh, came back to go to school and get our doctorates. My wife also was interested in getting a higher degree and so she ended up getting a doctorate in educational technology. Okay. Um,
0: Were there some cases that stuck out to you over your career that were especially challenging or especially rewarding?
1: Yeah, and you know, quite often the most challenging cases were the most rewarding also. Okay. Because you learned something beyond what you knew would be successful. You had to kind of work on new ideas and, and keep reviewing because the progress wasn't as fast as you'd like. I remember one kid I worked with who uh, came to my school in, in Colorado in second grade and um, he um, I had heard about him for a while he, he was in a second grade class and he wouldn't talk to anyone and um finally uh, his folder came in from his previous school district and said they'd been enrolled for speech therapy and um so i uh, picked him up and and uh, started working with him and he wasn't talking much to me just you know one word responses and um i i decided um well, the speech isn't uh, going so well, so we'll just play a game and we had a little basketball hoop with a Nerf ball, and we'd shoot it in. And he turned out to be a pretty good shot, or you know, I'd encourage him, and eventually he um, he started to um, to open up a little bit and um, and talk with me. Um, he he was never dressed very neatly or cleanly. And he he always seemed to be a little angry under the surface. And um, so I I worked with him for a while. His name was Stephen. And um, he had a really rough home life. And um, the more I worked with him, um, the more he came out of his shell and had success. And uh, it seemed like he adjusted in the classroom a little bit more. And one of the things I did was I'd bring ask him to bring somebody from his class along okay. and so we'd do things with somebody in from his classroom and and eventually he started relating to that person more easily and then to others and um toward the end of uh our time together, it was really apparent that he was a very smart child and uh he um Made progress in his speech sound, one of the reasons he wasn 't talking was because he had a lateral lisp, okay. so when he said his name, it sounded like Stephen okay. and he was embarrassed by that and didn 't uh, didn 't feel like talking much in addition to the other problems he had, so we were able to work on that and get that straightened out and uh, his speech intelligibility improved, and his speech wasn 't as distracting and he began to feel at home in his classrooms. And he stayed in that school district for two years um, and then moved out. Okay. Um, so hopefully, you know, things uh, were easier uh, socially for him in the next school district. But, okay. Yeah.
0: Um, so jumping back a little bit, so that was an experience from a school in Colorado. for The School for the Deaf in Milwaukee was, um, What kind of things would you work on with those children? Did you work on oral speech
1: and lip reading? Well, we worked on uh, spoken language. So if the children had residual hearing, we'd work on listening training. Uh, Most of them had speech production difficulties, so we practiced speech sounds and um, spoken language um, was supplemented with signing, of course. So um, as I, I told you in class, we... Um, would work very hard. The kids would work very hard, and the payoff was rather limited for mm-hmm. most of them. Their speech didn't improve much. Um, the spoken language did come around, but never reached a, a real high level for most of them. Um, the kids who who did the best were the kids who had the most residual right. hearing. You know, the thresholds at ninety and and better okay. were the ones who could do the most. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Did most kids have residual hearing, or most kids?
1: You know, I would say it most had some residual hearing. Okay. Yeah, but uh, often it wasn't enough to access the speech banana at conversational level okay. uh, for more than the low frequencies.
0: Okay. All right, um, so jumping back into some research a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, can you describe a little bit of your like day-to-day research of what you do here at Purdue?
1: Sure. Yeah, well, you know, I got interested in kids with hearing loss when I taught at the School for the Deaf. Mm-hmm. I got the fellowship to come back here and study them. And I was very fortunate in that, um, well, two things happened. One, um, my um, mentor, her, her name was Rachel Stark, as she was a speech pathologist. She was the head of this department. She was very interested in changes that babies make to their... Pre-linguistic vocalizations okay. um, prior to saying words on a regular basis, and so uh, Betty Stark um, studied typically developing babies, and she and Kim Oliver and a few other researchers of, of about the same in about the same time period found that um, babies make some really clear changes to become more speech-like at different ages before they say words on a regular basis, and that whole process is called vocal development, and um, so I was fortunate to be uh, able to choose Betty as my mentor and knew of her research and and helped on that, and then the other thing that was happening was that cochlear implants became um, more available Uh, to children. They started out giving cochlear implants to deaf adults and then deaf children who are older than 12 and then older than 6 and then around 3. And um, after I did my dissertation on um, using a computer spectrogram to teach deaf children to produce vowels, I kind of switched gears and studied kids with cochlear implants and how long it took them to get through the stages of vocal development that occur in typically developing kids. Okay, that's really Mm
0: -hmm. interesting. Um, Do you work in the clinic now at all? No. Do you miss working as a clinician?
1: Yeah, I do. I miss being able to kind of problem solve Mm -hmm. and think about children's special needs and ways to get them involved and become self-learners.
0: Right, right, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, um... Do you have any advice for students that are maybe wondering about coming becoming speech pathologists or researchers or anything like
1: that? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I think that um, it's a great career, and uh, I think you know the uh, surveys of job satisfaction show uh, speech language pathologists and audiologists are. Uh, careers where people enjoy what they do, and um, so the future is bright because we need more people in those areas. Um, so my advice is, you know, study hard as an undergrad so that your GPA is high and you can get into a good grad school. And once you're in grad school, you'll find out about all sorts of disorders and you'll think they're all interesting. And uh, the nice thing about grad school is that you um are exposed to all of those disorders and so when you get out you can get a job with adults or children right and um later in your career you may find that uh, you know you're ready for a change of pace and like me you might have a second career dealing with uh, a different population say if you've worked with children you work now want to work with adults or okay. vice versa or even go in and and uh do uh some work at the graduate level Mm -hmm. we need more phds to keep the uh training programs going Mm -hmm. so i think it's important uh, to think about um that as a career path too
0: okay Mm -hmm. when you first started as a clinician did you ever imagine that you would go back to get your doctorate
1: i had kind of been thinking about it yeah i didn't know how it would happen and You know, once you start having a family, it it doesn't seem like something that could happen, but it actually worked out pretty well because my wife and I both did PhDs at the same time and had four kids, and um, it was nice. It it, it worked out well. Good. Mm
0: -hmm. Is there anything in your career, do you ever look back and wish that you could do something differently? Are you pretty satisfied?
1: Yeah, I think things went about as well as they could. Yeah, and uh, considering um, our move back here to start doctoral programs, you know, my wife also benefited from mm-hmm. you know my getting the fellowship. So our our sort of um, decision making process when we thought about you know, moving back to Indiana and doing a doctoral program was um, that it should be beneficial for everybody in the family, and it worked out that way. So, mm-hmm.
0: alright well I think that is all the questions I have for you today thank you very much for being willing to be on my podcast and if you guys have any other questions about the show you can go to speechpathpodcast.com